everybody, and welcome to the 320 Club podcast. Why is it called the 320 Club? Well, 420 was already taken, and happy hour is happening somewhere else. We're your hosts. I'm Whiskey. Oh, yeah, put that drink down before you uh, take uh, take your words in. You had one job, man. You had one job. And I'm Rox. <laughs> okay, so. <sighs> you hurt, were you bugging a man for being thirsty? Yeah, I'm a little thirsty, too. What are you drinking? I'm drinking um, McAllen. What do we got here? Uh, Fine Oak 15. It's a little bit on the pricey side, but it's delicious. It is smooth. It's like honey for men. Mm, honey for men. <laughs> I like honey. <laughs> why, why, what does being a man have to do with it? Because <laughs> your kid ain't going to drink it. <laughs> oh, wonderful. In, in recent news, Trump says it's fake. What has Trump done in the news lately? Well, he expelled one journalist for asking him questions. Oh, that's right. He had to get that's a right. court order to reinstate him, and he hasn't been reinstated yet. Yeesh. <clears throat> well, it doesn't matter because the news is fake, right? Well, no. They, they say that, that <clears throat> journalism is the defender of democracy. It holds politicians to account, so their stories have a direct impact on our lives. I can agree with that, but there's something wrong with journalism these days. I think there's something wrong with our stories. Well, there is the concept of clickbait and flashy journalism and the 10-second journalism. and They, they don't really go through the who, like what, where, and why. sensational journalism, maybe? Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Yeah, okay. Well, you get a, you get like a, a personality, like a Trump figure who declares that the news is fake and that the media is fake. I mean, what does that do for, what does that do for an organization, you know, or, or a, a subject like journalism? I, I think it, for him and the way, way it seems to be portrayed is it's not so much, it's the, the news that he doesn't like is fake. The news he agrees with is real. Oh, okay. It's selective. So it's just about, it's more about his personality his character. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. So then we talk about stories and how they're used to develop and convey and protect us. Uh, there's different uh, ways that can happen. So stories are important to who we are as people, how we protect ourselves and uh, regulate our government. Hmm. Well... Let's just bring it back to Trump because he's such a hot topic, and we have yet to actually talk about talk about him. And I'll keep this short, but like, well, I'll keep it as short as I can. Just listen to like, I, as far as I'm concerned, he's just he's just a poor character. He's a bad actor, and a he's not very presidential when you think about it. Well, let's take it away from our personal opinion. There's several people that are against it, mm. but then again, realize that. <clears throat> He was an, he's an elected official. Not, that's, you're not wrong. That's true. So, like, regardless of what we let's let's take it away from if he's good or bad. Okay, what I recommend we stick with is is how he's covered and portrayed, and what how he controls the narrative. Okay, that's fair. No, that's actually pretty fair because, like, at the end of the day. If you, you know, you got to follow and believe in the process, he was elected, right? But the story that surrounds him, you know, arguably I would say he's not a very good steward of his own story. But you know who was a good steward of their story? Somebody like Stan Lee. Stan Lee was, I mean. See how I did that? That is awesome. <laughs> and we're back to Stan Lee again. We're back to Stan Lee again, folks. <laughs> No, we actually, uh, we're not here to talk about Trump, even though we could do an entire episode on, on the big fella with the small hands. Um, but um, we, uh, after our last podcast episode, I think, I think it, would, uh, it would be a disservice if we didn't actually give some proper kudos to the man who uh, created much of what you see in the, see in the I don't know, in the, in the comic book universe today. He had a hand in it anyway, him and Jack Kirby and a couple other guys. Is it, I got a feeling your monologue's coming on. Oh, no, no. That's for later. I do have a monologue. I'm going to be bad at it. I actually wrote it down this time just so I could, you know, 
make some kind of coherent sense. I'm I'm terrible at this though. I've I've learned over about seven episodes that uh, I have a lot of work to do. <laughs> anyway, so let's talk about somebody with good character. Let's talk about Stanley. Somebody who did do a good job of controlling their narrative, controlling their story, and let's tell. Let's you know. What do you th- what what comes to mind when you think about Stanley? Old dude. <laughs> What's that? An old dude. An old dude. But I mean, no, I, I say that affectionately. Like, like when I grew up, there wasn't a lot of young kids around, and the old people would always bring me over, give me a few bucks for doing work for them, and they would always sit around giving good advice, and they would tell me stories about their youth, and some of them were quite shocking about having grown up in the early part of the century. Mm -hmm. So when I see old, it's more wizened. And the fact that if you look at the underlying messages within Stanley's comic books and graphic novels, you start seeing how it's it's a a modern way of conveying morality to the younger generation. He he definitely brought something new. I think... Something that you touched on in the last episode is like he, uh, the little bit of history behind him is like the Fantastic Four was his uh, first real creation that led him to the led into the Marvel universe as we saw it, see it today. Um, but it was like it was a last ditch effort um, on a guy who thought his career as a comic book as a comic book guy, you know, professional career in comic books wasn't going to pan out. So you know he's looking at his way out of the business. And as a last-ditch effort, his, uh, his wife gave him some advice. It's like, well, why don't, if you're going to do some, do one more. But do it how you would do it. And then he ended up creating the Fantastic Four. Um, and what was different about it was that these characters had personalities and they dealt with issues. Like after they, you know, it was, he cared more about what these, what these super beings did you know, after they put on the uniform or when they took it off and when they had to go and pay their taxes or when they had to do just everyday life and just, as you said it in the last uh, last episode, how they lived out the human condition. So that was something that I thought, I, I kind of agree with you on, on, uh, on what you brought up. And the big thing that I want to tie in here, like, is the idea of morality. So I think what we can start off is asking about just stories. Let's just talk about storytelling. So my first question would be, why are stories even important? I think people can automatically make the judgment for themselves, but why are stories important? Well, they teach us things. And we, if we think back at Aesop's fables and how they're still being redone into cartoons today, stories are supremely important to how we educate our children to inculcate and foster the values that we want them to have. What makes us Canadian? What makes us uh, good citizens? And, I mean, we see stories of good citizenship. We see Paw Patrol. Mm. Um, (laughs) No, if you think about it, just be good citizens. How to be good. And what does good actually mean? Because the word good is kind of loose. That's a pretty subjective term. Right? Because, you know, anybody can think that they're doing good things but end up doing something that is, you know, of not, not of benefit to others. You got to think of it that way. I think probably a better way to, like, let, why don't we just talk about different types of stories or even better yet, what makes a good story or what makes a bad story? And we can start with, you know, what makes a story bad um, because... I don't know where I'm going with this. Well, a bad story is <laughs> a flat story. So if you look at the stories that win awards from uh, <clears throat> by peers, okay? So yeah. Oscars, um, for example. It's a story that was conveyed with depth and meaning that actually conveyed something to the people. Um, think Stories that don't, well, those are kind of, kind of flat. This, um, I'm trying to think of a good flat story. Probably eighty percent or eighty percent of the content I find on Netflix, but they're pretty forgettable. Like you're not interested in the characters, you're not interested in what's going on with the plot. So you kind of 
you're actually waiting for the end of the story to happen and you're probably falling asleep so it becomes forgettable so you, it's actually kind of hard to come up with a bad example of a you know a bad story or sorry a good example of a bad story i'm i'm thinking of that well we could probably say anything that had a uh, a sequel and the start there narrows <laughs> the field pretty good like <laughs> starship troopers <laughs> oh yeah yeah. Every sequel after that was bad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I saw something that uh, it was on my Facebook feed or whatever. Starship, it's like been, what has it been, like 20 years? This is almost like the 20-year anniversary since the movie came out, the first Starship Troopers. How does old. that make you feel? I feel old. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let's let's break it down to... Uh, modern life. I mean, you talked earlier about sensational journalism. You talked about uh, the way that uh, stories are being told, even just news, because like there's more than one type of story. There's there's news stories. I mean, there's you talked about Aesop's fables. There's there's all kinds of different stuff. I think it's the con- the context. So is there hope for the stories? Yes, but we, I think if you're tired of the way stories are being told, you got to check your medium. So if you're on the wrong channel, you need to move. Um, so if you only if you find that the stories aren't conveyed the way you want them to, there's other places. There's other kinds of theaters that, sm- that specialize in short runs. There are plays that don't require the same blockbuster um, deployment um, to get the 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 content you need uh, to make yourself feel more engaged in what's going on around you and to make you feel that you're not alone. Because, I mean, if you're somewhat of an intellectual that's being starved uh, or you feel that you need the stories to to make things uh, more meaningful, well, they are out there. It just, you just got to change your medium. Um, It's not like you have Blockbuster anymore. You can't walk over to this Hmm. video store. (laughs) That's a very 90s concept. Sorry. (laughs) You're, You're dating yourself. (laughs) <laughs> so um i think yeah. it's i think it has to do more between um i think it has to do more with a relationship between the consumer and the person telling the story i think that's how bad stories get told and that's how good like that's how you know a good story gets evaluated and how a bad story gets evaluated like what or how a story gets evaluated based on whether or not it's good or bad and i think it has the majority of it has to do with the relationship between the teller and the reader. Because there was an article I read not long ago. It said, uh, and this is just based on readers, but it said, uh, when readers are told that the perspective of the person telling the story doesn't matter because the story consists of objective facts, and I think they're talking about journalism here, um, they say the, increasingly, uh, the reader increasingly suspects that they are being lied to. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. No, I what I see is usually this happened, and then it's it's like the reader is supposed to fill in all the different pieces. Well, if I'm trusting you as a journalism specialist, um, I would expect that you at least take some time to understand what it means to people. Because right now, what happens is they go um, in the White House, this happened, mm. or on Parliament Hill, this happened. Okay, what does that mean? What are the, what are my yeah? What's my next order of understanding? Okay, so um, the Ford government uh, canceled the fifteen dollar pay rate. Well, that's not good. Some people are going to be happy. What does that mean? Do we actually save anything? Did anything actually change? What were the benefits of the last hike? Where's that analysis that tells me? So what? Yeah. Why do I care? Yeah. No, I think that uh, ties in a lot. Like, what people are, we talked earlier about fake news, um, but we also talked about, you know, when people are bringing in opinions, um, I think people care more about, I don't know if I'm tying into your point very effectively or not, but I think people care more about authenticity and a personal connection to whoever the teller of the story is as opposed to, the, just the plain objectivity of the story. So that's where you're getting with your so what is that? I, I think. 
I don't, I don't say it's the, I guess the connection, there might be a, a younger term. To me, it's, it's more like, what is the analysis? What does it mean to me? So yeah, I, I guess you could call it a connection. Right. Um, because is, that's is what it, you're, that's what you're seeing now. Like when, when people talk about, and I, I'm using, you know, air quotes, authenticity and, you know, personal connection. I mean, that's, that's for the, that's for the people who broadcast, you know, Fox News or or CNN or anything like that. Those, you know, they're they're involving a hell of a lot of authenticity. And I'm using air quotes again, and uh, and and personal connection, but not necessarily putting the objectivity out there. It's all it's all subjective. I would I wouldn't say put it uniformly on different networks, um, but I mean, there's d- different stories that get garner different kinds of attention. Right. So I'll just put it out there to put it out a feed, like. I think there's, we could do, uh, to paraphrase you, we could do better. We could hmm. do better as a people saying, listen, guys, we don't want to hear your, your we don't want journalism by tweets. <laughs> yeah. We really don't. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> if it's, you know, what, was it 74 characters or less? If it's only 74 characters, it doesn't tell me. I think me. it's 140 now. Oh. They, they increase the character limit. Yeah. I have Not idea. that that does any, I don't know. <laughs> I don't tweet. But anyways, we should probably be on t- Twitter at some point, though. <laughs> I have trouble managing Facebook. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but anyways, it's, or, or th- think about the who, what, where, when, why in one one Twitter blurb isn't really useful. We have evolved that. We've had systems like that in the 80s, and we we decided not to use them because they were too restrictive. Mm. Now we're back to them saying, oh, it's pretty cool. No, no, no. We need to do the analysis in our stories. And we, if we tie back to how Stan Lee, he wrote his stories. It wasn't so much that these guys were superheroes. It's, it's that they had superheroes, they had principles, and those principles caused them problems. And if we look at morality as a lesson, when you have ultimate power, and you choose to you know, get a job and do research and try and benefit society through genuine labor, I think that sends a powerful message. So that hard work does pay off. And even if you think you could get away with it easily, um, values kind of make, make it harder, but I think righteously harder. Do you think our capacity for storytelling is on the decline? No, I think our ability to filter is is not. So if you look at the advertising engines, how whenever you whenever you go to a movie, it ha- most of the plots are fairly predictable. Oh, okay. So well, one might argue with you that we've been recycling plots for hundreds of years. That there's really only seven stories that can be told. Well, I think that's what makes things great. If okay. You think about it. So you got you can you can do some sort of uh, standard storytelling technique with the rising action, the climax, the falling action, and then the denouement. But then you got a story like The Notebook. Oh God! No, just just think about that <laughs> and how it unfolds, and how they unpack the scenario and just lets the, the leader, uh, the reader, see it in increments. And then that's not till the end. It seems fresh for at the time that it's released, but it's telling a tale that's been told many, many times. But that I think that's that's a responsibility on the on the teller of the story, right? If they're able to do it and do it well, people will it will resonate with people. But is it a unique story? Not necessarily, no. But I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think we can retell stories because history does repeat itself. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, we've been retelling stories for, God, since we drew paintings on cave walls. <laughs> like, I would argue that we never get it right the first time. So maybe the third time we'll get it right or more. Yeah. And, but that's okay. We're in the, when I, when I was growing up, you watch the same movie over and over and over again. You know why? Because it's the only one you had. <laughs> well, I also watched The Empire Strikes Back over and over and over just because it was awesome and I loved it as a kid. I know like every line in that film just because I'm such a huge nerd. 
and I just love that. I uh, love that. Love that stuff growing up. Okay, so you don't think our capacity for storytelling is on the cli- on the decline, but are our stories getting like are they getting are they turning bad? I would say the mass media ones are very selective. Okay. And you say, would you argue then that if we have a collective of stories that are bad, that are being kind of perpetuated by the mass media, does that mean that morality is plummeting? I think our ability to communicate morality is declining in many respects, depending on the show. Okay. Like, I don't get anything from SpongeBob. You don't get anything from SpongeBob? I see see a couple of guys who got super high made a kid's show, and made millions off of it. That's what I and, see. And Spongebob the movie. So my kid is totally into Spongebob. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'll watch Spongebob because it's like, I would I, I would say it's like the, it's almost like a modern day equivalent of Looney Tunes. Like it's, it's, a, it's not Looney Tunes, but it's like a modern day version of it, you know? It's acceptable because both parents and kids can consume it. They can watch it. I agree. It's not like Rocket Robin Hood. That was the worst show I've ever seen. Oh, I remember that. That no, you're really dating yourself, Jesus. <laughs> Rocket Robin Hood, man. I don't even remember the plot of any of them. <laughs> so is more okay. Let's let's just come right out and say it. Is morality declining, whiskey? <laughs> I think morality is changing, and then morality should change because it's a reflection of the times and people. Because otherwise we'd be still very racist, hanging up uh, people who didn't identify as straight. And those things are just wrong. I think we are growing. And women would stay at ho- be declared to stay at home and work the kitchen. Like I think we are evolving for the better. So okay. with those values in mind, um, but I think our ability to communicate values is... You you talk about communicating values, but I mean, do you remember Teletubbies? I do. I never watched it. I I was I missed that. I missed that generation. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really I didn't really make it through that. I was a little too old for that. But it was not too old for my uh, for my brother. So that that explains a lot for him. Um. I think you can judge a civilization or I think you can judge a society based on the stories that it tells. Um, And I think storytelling is a human universal. Um, It's, I mean, yeah, like our, our capacity for reevaluating our values is, is increasing. I, I see storytelling as almost like it's a tribal affair. Like it's, it's a tribal event. You know, you go back to that saying of it takes a village to raise a child, right? There is a, I mean, if, if we're going to go off that, okay. So if it's a very tribal affair to have a story to tell or to, or to raise a child, are we doing that effectively now? As a, as a society, right? I would say the outlets are there. Especially okay. if you want to say, I'm going to self-publish and get this out there. I'm going to have a, you know, the Aboriginal tribes still have powwows and tell stories. I'm going to be part of this luncheon and tell stories. Right. Um, they exist. So the outlets are there, but it's for us to go out and seek and find them. Right. I think with storytelling, we become passive uh, people. We no longer go, most of us don't go to the stores and buy books anymore. Yeah. So the the seeking out the knowledge and say, listen, that book and that collection is not good enough for me. I want a book that isn't part of my collection and my immediate selections. Right. So I think, okay, I can agree with you on that. I think, uh, let's, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Like, just look at parenting. Like, look how much availability there is. You don't even have to sit down and tell a story. I mean, not everybody's good at telling a story, but it's not like, not like the old days where, and I'm talking about the old, old days where, you know, you'd sit around like the village elder or whatever, and then they would tell the story of the kids and it was up to the parents to just like, you know, talk to the kid or whatever to figure out. It's like, so what did you think about that? How did that make you feel? That kind of stuff. Um now the village elder is being replaced by movies and television and and Paw Patrol and, you know, the Marvel Universe and Star Wars and, you know. 
And, but we don't give kids necessarily the the better tools to do the analysis to learn from it. Well, that's I think that's a that's a problem of parenting. Like I think parenting has a big responsibility in that. I like my question to you would be: Are parents lazy? Are they not getting involved enough in in? I think that's I think that's I think that's a complicated question. Because um, I think studies I think, show that you know parents have more access to their children than they ever had over sure. the last fifty years at least. So is that a fair question? I don't know. Um, I think we we need to spend more time talking to our children so they get the ability to understand what the message really is. How to decode that message. Well, look at, look at how much time parents are actually able to start for starters to spend with their kids. I know, like I know I said earlier, I may have said earlier that, you know, like our parents lazy, but I mean, look at, look at both, both uh, parents, mother and the father, and regardless of, sex or gender or anything like that both parents are normally working and they're working long hours and and are they going to be able to have the time in their day to spend with their kids i mean that's that's a i think that's a valid question yeah well they have so they have the time but what makes a good story i think it's the relationship between the teller and the listener um you need the teller. First of all, I mean, we've already kind of hinted at it earlier. The teller needs to be trustworthy. Like, the person telling the story needs to be trustworthy. I don't think so. You don't think so? Why not? Even Shakespeare, the fool, was the intelligent one. We trust Shakespeare, though, wholeheartedly. We trust everything that he published. They may not have trusted a lot of the stuff that came out of his mouth back in the day, but, man, that guy is... He's made the pantheon. <laughs> there, there's an old saying, don't shoot the messenger. Shoot, don't shoot the messenger. Okay. Or don't let the messenger kill the message. I think, I think there needs to be trust. If a, sto- if a storyteller is going to tell, the, uh, going to tell their story, I think, I think there needs to be trust. But there needs to be uh, an adoption of responsibility and uh, on, the, on the part of the audience, on the part of the, the listener. I think as we as listeners, if we challenge the storytellers to either rise or fail. Oh yeah, we don't in, we don't just blindly trust the the teller. We ask them questions to make them demonstrate that they're trustworthy. Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. Um, but I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think. I think in many circumstances that. People that when people tell stories in allegory, and then people t- interpret as literal, I think it, it, show, it illustrates a <clears throat> failure to educate. I think there's a. I, maybe I'm arguing more from a point of view of journalism. To be honest, like when I talk about how a teller, um, how a teller must be trustworthy. Like what I'm saying is, a teller creates something that the listener can relate to in a positive way, and what I've come to understand is that our understanding of basic facts about say politicized science issues or what have you, um, it all depends on whether or not we trust the person conveying them. And in the decision to trust a source, objective expertise appears to matter less than the determination that this person shares our beliefs, assumptions, and suspicions that they are in a sense, a member of our tribe. So I think that's that's where I was kind of going with that. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, I I think when you say in a positive way, but how do, how do you relate to a horror movie in a positive way? And I think if you do some research about the uh, you know poetry for coming out from the First World War and how it changed from the start, where it was all fuzzy and. I'm dying in the name of England and all this other stuff. We're and going I, on an adventure and we'll be back by Christmas. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, going back to, uh, you know, the shell shockness, the, after watching their, their friends die on a battlefield and how it's, it's not. And, and it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, it's, uh, I don't think it has to be a positive way. I think people just need to be able to relate to it and allow the message to help them grow. So, 
here's what I think about storytelling. Okay. If storytelling is a tribal act, like, would you agree that it's a tribal act? If you mean tribal as in it's our society, yes. Okay. Yeah, it could be any tribe. It could be the nation of Canada. It could be, you know, within your small community. It could be in within your neighborhood. It could be, you know, if you're part of a philosophical group or a whiskey club or listening to a podcast, you know, it could be anything. A tribe could be like almost any any group or association, right? So if storytelling is a tribal act, and the point of telling a story is to demonstrate a proper mode of being. I think that's that's really what it comes down to. It's like it's demonstrating to people um, like a lesson learned or a moral of a story in order to tell them how to live a proper mode of being, right? I think that's where it comes down to. It's like it's it's trying to trying to set an example for behavior. And I think what happens is um, we get into a lot of hero worship. Um, it's a, I think that's a place where you end up starting and it's a place where we've often started as a, you know, as a species. Cause I think it was a lot of the time it was a hero who went out and did something of note, um, that the tribe felt the need to tell stories about them. So, <laughs> okay. So because we're tribal, we tell stories that relate independently to our tribes as tribes grow, they inevitably have they have to come into contact with one another, and historically speaking, this has led to conflict. Simultaneously, or perhaps subconsciously linked to this tribal war is a war of ideas. Stories are being told about gods and heroes relevant to each individual tribe coming into contact with one another. So what happens is the gods and heroes, they go to war with one another, and out of that war, a supreme god or a superordinate hero arises. This has been refer- You can refer to this person as like a meta hero. We've done this for millennia, okay? As far back as the Mesopotamians. Old polytheistic religions did this with the gods. They had, you know, the Greeks had Zeus. Uh, and he was surrounded by a pantheon of gods. The Romans basically stole a bunch of their gods and because they said that they had crap gods and they needed, you know better gods, so they just took them from the Greeks. The Norsemen, they had Odin, they had Thor, Heimdall, the Jotunheim, etc. Jotunheim were giants, but uh, anyway. Christianity, um, as a monotheistic religion, had Christ, but he also had, you know, he had a bunch of saints that kind of surrounded the, surrounded the theology behind it as well. <clears throat> so what's happened, and... I'm, this is by no means an, an original thought. There's a little bit of research, and this is something I've been kind of listening to over the last couple of years. But what's happened over the last, let's say, 100, 200 years is secularism has been on the rise. And it's been a very serious thing for a couple hundred years now. And it really didn't have heroes or gods of, you know, of the sort uh, for a long time. Um, a German philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. He came along in the 19th century and he made a series of highly accurate predictions about the following century. Um, he even predicted the rise of, uh, of the Third Reich and, and the advent of massive war on a massive scale where nations were going at it and there would be uh, mass atrocities uh, and that it would bring about almost the end of the world. He, he predicted that with like abnormal precision. You should, uh, you should look it up. So he made a hot series of highly accurate predictions uh, about the 20th century um, through a work of fiction called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He also identified that because of a rise in secular, secularism, that God, or the Christian God, was dead. That man had successfully killed God. The problem is, is like people might think of that, and secularists might think of this as an as a act of triumph on the part of human beings. And Nietzsche noted that. This, but this is no, there's no triumph to be had here. And his reasoning was that now our superordinate guiding principle on morality was all but completely wiped out. It seems to have only been preserved in the West over the last 100 to 200 years because we had cultural norms and laws in place to keep them preserved. The problem that I'm finding and others, um, others who 
also have explained this. The problem is that technological advances and corruption within a lot of our structures, including, you know, politics, corporations, businesses, uh, you know, even in within society itself, corruption within our structures are slowly eroding those norms of morality over time. Simple common decency, I mean, just think about that, like somebody holding a door open for you. Like simple common decency is almost incredibly difficult to come by. Uh, like you can't even walk up the street of a downtown corridor without seeing somebody staring down at their phone, um, getting in into an argument with a server at a coffee shop or having an altercation with a driver. Like road rage is a thing now and people YouTube it. Um, so like people pull out their phones whenever you see people getting in fight and they don't actually do anything about it and stop it or, you know, call the authorities or anything like that. Like just simple decency. It's, it almost seems like it's, it's incredibly difficult to come by now. And another argument is, you know, people have willingly given up personal freedoms in order to empower the legal system to provide them with the illusion of security. I mean, just take the Patriot Act as as an example. Or even the recent flights of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden out of the U.S. I mean, love them or hate them as individuals or what they've done, regardless of your perspective on them, they attempted to whistleblow on a system that they thought was corrupt, and it has inevitably changed their lives, you know, forever. Uh, whether we like it or care about it or not, I mean, those guys are in exile. Um, so, in my opinion, arguably, morality is either breaking, it's broken, or at the very least, it's on the decline. But only if you look at it from the perspective of the internet. So, Nietzsche determined that in order to do in order to stay alive as a species in order to have those superordinate principles guide us we need to rediscover our values or even perhaps create new ones i mean he came up with the idea of the i think it was called the ubermensch um, or the superman and i mean you can probably draw a conclusion for yourself um from that and to be honest, this is a pretty wide logical leap, and there are better people than myself who are able to explain this, but, <laughs> well, I need smarter people to fill in the gaps. But my thought, and it is, I'll reiterate, by no means an original thought, is that subconsciously, we have started to already create new heroes, new worlds, new things that would help reinforce the virtues and moral principles that guided us uh, in the past. I mean, um, religion, modern religion as we know it today, did a very good job of telling stories that guided people's actions and guided people's direction and helped people find uh, a, a way of being that was meaningful. So I think subconsciously we've actually been doing that. We're still doing that. Um, and we're trying to update our capacity to invent a new behavioral code. I mean, look at some of the examples that we have today. You got Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. You have uh, tales like Mask of Zorro. You have, uh, just look at the superheroes that have been born out of the last hundred years. You have Batman, Superman. I mean, you've got Spider-Man, Captain America, and the rest of the Marvel Universe. You've got Star Wars, and you've got Harry Potter. And a lot of these, in a lot of these cases, most of these stories, as we mentioned before, these stories are a regurgitation of old stories like Beowulf and St. George and the Dragon with Virginia. But I think that's okay. It's okay to have, um, it's okay to have a regurgitation of these stories as long as we can make sure that, you know, they're, they're meaningful for our kids. And when I hear the argument from somebody talking about, a story that is, I've heard it before. I'm t- like, I'm tired of watching, seeing all these Marvel movies, and I'm tired of seeing. There's another Star Wars movie out this year. It's like I'm tired of. It. It's like you know what? If you don't like it, don't watch it. Who cares? Like, it's not. It's not necessarily for you then. But I think there's a lot of value that can be derived from those stories. And to be honest, if storytelling is a tribal act, it's to set up the next generation for success is to help, you know, let them know, um, 
it's to help let them know like how how we behaved and you know learn from our mistakes and live a meaningful life you know i I think that's the that's that's the that's the best that I can do because after this I think my voice is getting too annoying for our viewers. <laughs> is that hashtag monologue or hashtag monologue end or hashtag monologue that never ends? I'm sorry, man. It's just this thing has been on my mind for a while now, and I've been listening to clinical psychologists and I've been listening to philosophers. And do you have a psychologist? I don't have a psychologist, but. <laughs> I uh, I don't know. You listen to people on YouTube. You listen to people on other podcasts, and it's something that's been on my mind for a while, and it's something that I've been wanting to. I don't know. This is one of the reasons why I got into podcasting. To tell stories. To tell stories, or at least break down the messaging. I th- I think I just you, need you to get some, better at it. <laughs> you, you raised some interesting points. Um, the first one I would be is we have to be careful that when we choose our selection of stories. And if we look at how information is presented to us, it tends to be with to be in line with our existing views. So we're just going to be picking things up that was it's, it just becomes more of the same, and it drives me nuts. So if I flick to a newspaper, it's always the same stuff. But I've been here five different times. I'm pretty sure you've written something in the last 24 hours. Why is it always the same? Oh, what do you mean by the same? Um, it's the same content, the same article. Or a same story by a different author, um, so it's always the same stuff. But okay. I want to. But I, I want to. Where I was going with this is, um, be careful if all you listen to is anti-establishment style of movies. Do you think movies that I listen to are anti-establishment? Uh, some of them. Well, if you do Batman, Batman's kind of anti-establishment. He's, he was supported yeah, the police, I could argue but he with was that. he was against the the ruling political government well he saw it as corrupt right it was run by the mafia or whatever but and the word corrupt is kind of a broad thing because politics is complicated yeah it's you, true you're trying to balance the needs of so many different people and to have a amicable outcome is usually going to piss off at least one person and hopefully he's not anti-establishment <laughs> well it's not as if they come out with stories about the the strife and struggles of the desk jockey. <laughs> it's called House of Cards. <laughs> oh, that's there's. You want to talk about a show that's anti-establishment or talks about corruption within politics? Go watch that. And then even with <laughs> or, the, or the show scandal or the show scandal itself with its own with its own uh, with its own people. But uh, okay, so be careful not to be too anti-establishment. Well, what happens when establishments are becoming fragmented? I mean, there's never been a more div- greater divide between, let's just call it out for what it is, the left and the right, and they're each telling their own different stories. I think what's happening is the same thing that's been happening with human beings for, but for hold, generations. Hold, but hold on, though. That, that That's the point is, I mean, when you have left and right, I mean, I guess that's how you're going to be with a two-party system is that you're going to have our morality or their morality. I mean, in, in Canada, you have our morality, and if you're the Green Party and you, and you, or the Marijuana Party, you become stuck in some interesting positions when you talk about morality and the evolution of morals. I really don't like the use of labels, though, but that's the way, that's the direction that the wind is blowing, if you think about it. Like, I would rather, I would rather vote on issues... Um, and have an opinion on issues, and then whoever you know my candidate is that you know I agree with the most. I mean, arguably that happens, but it's almost like certain topics, certain issues become like card carrying with with whatever part of the binary equation that they're representing. Yes, well, they're, they're supporting that that platform that the current government's running on, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and that happens. That's, that's normal. What's your message? You really echo this message. And if you look at branding, that's a key element of branding, mm-hmm. is to keep the message simple, succinct, and uniform. So they're always going to repeat the same stuff over and over again. Right. Because they're actually trying to brainwash you. Just start, just let you know. Everybody's trying to brainwash you. That's why I watch those Marvel movies, so I can get my fix of anti-establishment. <laughs> <laughs> I need to get a brain. <laughs> well, but I, I, I think that you also touched on um, a few other points. I think there's going to be a war of ideas. Like, that's, 
I think that's what's it's already happening right now. But the, what you're what you're saying isn't new. Um, I know. I already established that. <laughs> yeah, but there's other pieces about war of ideas that you're missing. So the things that sparked the the uh, industrial revolution. So in France, the pamphlet wars, the printing press. Yeah. So when these things come out, stories could be reached and they could be uniform all the way across. I think that in history, that is, is probably the most riveting time. Um, and then when we started coming up with computers and we started networking and we could push out stories and PDFs and, and you could actually read what was there and didn't have to necessarily buy it. Mm. And then you say, okay, well, that's really cool. <clears throat> You talk about computers and printers and how you could print out stories and you could hand them out. Um, the automated prints, uh, printing systems that we have. I mean, like the evolution of our ability to communicate stories is fantastic. It is. So hold but on. But there are certain things, like certain mediums that I, I find are dying too, right? But hold on. Then you, then you hit into things like the Pirate's Bay and Torrance and before that, that was Napster. The whole digital revolution where stories can just... Kazaa and LimeWire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could see these things move move information like never before. Um, so, I mean, when I was doing IRC, what they call dark web now, um, it's it's like there's there's so much more information out there than people are willing to understand. And and the filtering of that is, is kind of fantastic. Um, and then you move into now where... You have Netflix and iTunes and and podcasts. You and don't if, you don't like Netflix, and I don't think you like podcasts either. No, I'm even I, though you do. And <laughs> it's, it's it's not about liking or disliking. It's like <laughs> it's like hating the written word. I mean, some things are just preposterous. But well, I think I think the written word is. I think well. There's others that would argue that we're kind of going through, it's kind of ironic, we're going through like an almost Gutenberg revolution of, you know, the spoken word is is coming to replace the written word. I mean, just look how many, look how much content is created in a day on YouTube. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's a video. Yeah, but you're still hearing people speak. It used to be uh, like... I know, I know, I know. And, and, and I agree with you in... Is that in in the last little while with YouTube, you've seen an increase in quality. People are investing to to do these videos much better. And heck, I just looked at one to fix uh, my my wife's key fob. Um, yes, yeah, so I do value that medium, and I think it's never been a more exciting time. And I think on top of that, if you look at the evolution of uh, websites to give us access to that equipment, so it's not just the fact that we have the platforms. It's it's <clears throat> It's the ability to access the technologies that will open these doors and the portals to the world. So you, when we start pairing written word, and, and I think the biggest leap I think we, we, we talked about earlier is virtual reality now. So you think about oh, internet, yeah. YouTube, now you can immerse yourself. You could be like crawling underneath the car and fixing that component with the mechanic. That's crazy. So you think about telling that is cool. I never even thought of about an about an application like that. So you think about telling the story, and but now you are part of the story, and and you say, well, okay, well, we're, I remember right. when. Hold on, but you you, you had your monologue. I'm just giving you another thirty <laughs> seconds here. Sorry, man. I, I, I'm a bad. I'm bad for interrupting. <laughs> okay, so, but the point becomes, is. Is morality on a decline? But if you there's other factors here. We've got the charter rights and freedoms. Other things have evolved since then, and we somewhat take them for granted. There's always going to be gripes with the have and have-nots. There's always going to be like, you should have, and if I was your age, when I was your age, I had to do this. Those things do exist. They do. But there's you shouldn't expect them. Especially we're non-gender binary. If you're only holding <laughs> doors for women, you might get punched in the face. But well, I I don't give a shit about what your statement of gender is. If you're a douchebag, you're a douchebag. You know, I just be just be a nice person. You know, be respectful of others. Have an intent. Have a plan for whatever it is that you need to do. Carry it out. 
but also be respectful of the movements and motions of others. I just had a vision. What? We're going to do virtual reality morality lessons. Virtual reality. Okay. I think we're going to... You said last episode that we're going to start doing more logic fallacies. Now we're going to do virtual reality morality lessons. Hey, it's going to be a busy year. <clears throat> okay. All right. Well, good luck with that. I'll uh, I'll try. <laughs> but here's the thing about virtual. I remember when it was like really clunky and it kind of died, but it has since made a serious comeback. And like, there's there's some pretty pretty awesome applications that they're that they're coming out with it. Like, I didn't even think about the idea that you could have instructional. You know, you can have an instructional kind of viewpoint of how to fix your car or, I don't know, any other application. That's pretty cool. Well, think about it. If we can do that for um, uh, what we call airline pilots and simu- flight simulation. That's true. Uh, race car driving, race simulation. What the, what the only thing left is like not reaching out and touching it. But if you have the goggles on and you got the little hand guards on, you could technically be reaching out and touching it. Yeah, that's wild. I've seen some pretty cool research in the States where... It's like the holodeck. The only thing you don't have is f- uh, full feedback yet. Hmm. Okay. So where do we go from here? Virtual reality. <laughs> yeah. I don't like... You talk to people on the street and... And I mean like on the streets. No, I'm terrible. I don't know anything about the streets. Um, you talk to people around you and I mean... There's a lot of complaints out there. Like, people think just common decency is is gone. Now, it was something that you you brought up. You think, well, we used to have it so much harder back in the day. Um, when you talk to your elders, it's like, okay, well, I mean, that was your struggle, man. <laughs> like, no, but I, I think it's, it's the context. I think the, the human condition evolves. So when we're not worried about getting enough calories anymore, we're worried about losing them. Um, uh, well, we're not worried about getting the newspaper on time. We're looking at the internet and worried about the content. I, I think there's, I think as the human evolves, so does this environment. <clears throat> so, uh, is it harder? Someone tell, some people tell you it's, it was a simpler time, where they felt that they were a little more free, they're a little more at home. But you, if you talk to other people, they felt trapped and isolated. Hmm. So I, I think there's other pieces to this. Um, yeah. So is storytelling dead? I would say no. I think it's live and well. Oh, definitely. I think I think everybody should tell their story. But I think I think there's a lot of people who still have a responsibility to storytelling that aren't like they're absolving themselves of that responsibility. Totally. Pay for your newspaper. Just so you know. Pay for your news. Well, because that's, you that's got, a dying you, medium. Well, no the the no it, newspaper as in the news that you're getting. Mr. Environmentally friendly. No, but pay for your subscription to The Economist. Like online? An online subscription? Yeah, and they have good videos there too. But pay for your your version or your issue of uh, New York Times or National Post. Uh, pay for them. You so are you, seriously showing your bias, Mr. Whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> don't be a hater. <laughs> um, but what I'm saying, I don't mind the New York Times or I don't mind the National Post or anything. But you okay. pay for them. You give journalists... A livelihood. So we're not looking. They're not looking for the, the singular output, but they can. They have the money and the time to invest in the stories that matter to us. I think. I think that's a message that might fall on deaf ears, to be honest. Because, like, as soon as the internet came out, I mean, just look at music as an example. Look at something like as soon as music was able to be put and you know processed onto the internet. Look at something like Napster. People automatically assume that if it's on the internet it should therefore be free the only thing it should cost is your uh is your subscription to the to the internet your your payment plan for your internet connection that's the only thing that should cost and i think what's going to happen and what's already happening is you're getting all these mediums are dying like journalism that kind of stuff um, they're dying a slow and painful death, and they're as a result, they're coming out with more clickbaity articles. They're coming th- out with stuff. I, I that's think sensational. we're gonna have to we're gonna come up with the one on internet neutrality and all those other things. But uh, you know, when we talk about intellectual property, if you build something and you spent your life 
and your career trying to build it, um, and you have a certain talent, you should have the right to make a bit of money off that talent. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you know what? If you pay for a script subscription to a good newspaper, I think you're going to get a lot more well-rounded um, <clears throat> reviews and essays from people. As the as a famous comic book character once said, "If you're good at something, never do it for free." It was the Joker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: is they people in that medium, they're fighting an uphill battle. It's all well and good for you to tell people to, you know, they need to they need to go and pay for these people, but it turns into a charity rather than you're actually paying for a product that they're selling because the internet is the obstacle. No, I, I think you o- overgeneralize when you say the internet is the obstacle. What are the four rules of marketing again? I'm not going to, I'm not doing <laughs> this. I'm not playing this game with you. <laughs> so I understand that it's just a medium. So how we use it matters. Um, if you want quality of content and you want it for free, well, guess what? Go buy, go to the grocery store and get something for free. Let's see how well that works out. That's different. No, it's not. It is. No, it's not. Because the internet is a different medium than a grocery store, than a physical place, than a postage stamp or a, you it's, know, a it's cell It's not. If you, if you look at your, the anger you had for the decline of industries, Canadian industries like Nortel, and you're saying we should have offended our intellectual property much better before it was stolen. Well, and caused caused decline. Well, you know what? You're just arguing for them not to defend intellectual property. People shouldn't. Yeah, because that's what it is. If it's I'm on the not inter- arguing for it. I'm saying they have an uphill battle. Internet. If you create content and if you're gonna sell shit, I mean, yeah, you have a right to like it's your intellectual property. You have a right to sell that stuff. I'm just saying. You have a serious uphill battle when you put stuff on the internet because people want it for free because they're already paying for an internet connection. They're already paying for the access. Now they have to go and pay for your content. So I put gas in my car, so I drive up to a bank and because I drove to the bank, I can take up the money for it's free. Not the same. It's, it's not totally the same. same. It is, it is the totally the same. same. Stealing is stealing. Get over it. <laughs> so you're going to call people pirates because... They stole something. They stole it's piracy now. Okay, so that's that's like if somebody was to come and steal my car, and then the next morning my car is still there. Piracy on the internet is not the same. It's thing. actually worse because you're now stealing people's livelihoods. That's a whole other episode, and I could talk for like literally hours. <laughs> so let's let, let's 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 be blunt here. Theft of intellectual intellectual property is no joke. Absolutely. You you may be just chanting a uh, a populist point of view when it comes to it's on the internet it should be free. Isn't that what I'm here for? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna throw my glass at you. <laughs> my glass, <laughs> the one that I provided to you. <laughs> hey, I'm frugal. Yeah. Anyways, um, so the, the it, it is no joke. The, the theft of intellectual property is very important. It decline. It actually attributes to a significant loss of revenue for our Canadian companies. I, so, I don't so, disagree so with, with, with you. that in mind, is that if we as a people say let's support beyond just CBC, let's 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 support points of view that are beyond just one side of it. So, if you give a couple of bucks a month to a newspaper, you think is, has value to it, I think you're going to get a better return. You're going to allow them to people who do journalism to be to be. Uh, professional, not worried about where their next piece of food's going to come from. And they can sink their teeth into the issues that matter to us. They can look at the so what analysis and they can spend some time on it. Because, you know, what, how often do we get to see now breaking journalism on, you know, in, in our world? We don't see it anymore. It's gone down to the uh, tagline and that sensationalism journalism that we got. Yep. So I'm, I'm tired. That's, that's, and then we have to wait that's for That's arguing the, my point. So then we have right? to wait for that book to come out to okay. read it. Here's a question I have for you. Do you consider our product, the 320 Club, to be an intellectual property? And should we then, therefore, start selling it? Because ain't nobody going to buy it right now. That's for sure. So 
say we ever say we get popular, say we we become very popular, we you know we start getting a ton of viewership and ton of followers and all that kind of stuff. Would you would you start charging people for for that viewership because it's now an intellectual property, right? Well, technically, it's an intellectual property right now. As soon as it came online, we took names to it. If it's stolen, would it cause us hardship? Yes, it causes us problems. So that's by definition the theft of intellectual property. Yes. Is it copyrighted? No, it's right now it's open source. Here we are. Okay. We never expressed a copyright to any of this stuff. Um, and that's why we chose generic names for everything. Mm. Nothing is really ours. It's something that's been common. It's nothing something we could ever defend that is well, uniquely ours. It's like trying to defend the clear blue. Um, but if we made money, let's say we did get popular, um, there's other ways to make money off it and still provide the content. Oh um, yeah, you're but it comes down like to your marketing our, and. But we we at the three twenty club we we have an express mission statement. We we, we want to educate and inspire people. Yeah. So if we're gonna put up barriers to that, I I I would have a problem. Do I need the money to live off the three twenty club? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But do we need to? Do we feel that we need to get the message out beyond our random angry Facebook posts? <laughs> no. Uh, so, well, no. But we, we want to. We want to have a more informed dialogue of how this comes out. So, could we make money off it? Probably. But are we absolutely trying to right now? Absolutely not. Okay. But we would only be looking to cover our costs. So, to go back to your, your original point, I, I still think that, you know, theft of intellectual property is a very serious issue and I don't disagree with you on that. I'm just I'm just going to reiterate my point again and I don't know, maybe I'm not making myself clear. I think because of the medium of something like the internet or an interconnected network, um, the people who are trying to sell content and I'm talking about like ideas and stories and like telling stories, especially for those who work in journalism, they have a serious uphill battle on their hands right now. And that's where I, that's the reason why I think you're seeing a rise in sensational journalism where it's like all clickbaity and it's like 15 things you didn't know about, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, like you're well, seeing a lot of that. Yeah. What they're trying to do is get you to click more to go into the advertising. Yeah. So, and you know what? They're, they put their content together, they choose to put in. But guess what? If no one clicked on it, they wouldn't make any money. But people and they do would click stop. on it, and this prove, it's a proven, so, effective means. I know. It's just a, we need and that's to, the competition. That's what you got to beat. We need to be better as a people. We need to be more scrutinizing. And what we're willing to accept in stuff coming, vote with your wallet, vote with your time. Oh, my God. It's almost like... We could make a T-shirt out of that. <laughs> yeah. Vote with your wallet. Okay, so I think that's a good segue. Um, so today's educational topic is logical fallacy. Logical fallacy. Here's a logical fallacy. Okay. It's a straw man argument. It's brought to you by our favorite man, President Donald Trump. Mm, you brought it right back to Trump. Oh, we were talking about Stan Lee. Okay, go ahead. Well, go we, ahead. we open with Trump. I'm going to figure we close with Trump. Um, and, when we, and you could say... Other dictators have done this. I won't name any names. So, Other try. dictators. You're calling him a dictator now. Well, just he wants to be. He's a wannabe, okay. but he ain't okay. no dictator. Okay, you're deluding my point. Um, so a straw man is a, a common form of argument and is an informal fallacy. And on giving the impression of refuting one's opponent's argument while actually refuting an argument that is not presented by the opponent. One engaged in this fallacy is to be attacking a straw man. And this is the example of, what near and dear to my heart is the concept of, of uh, how the, the 5,000 refugees are invading a country of several million. <laughs> the one coming through, Venezuela, okay. moving north through Mexico. Okay. The caravan of several thousands invade a country of I'm know, hundreds letting, of millions. I'm just letting you monologue for a while while I pour <laughs> another glass. I was going to say, I got some stuff for you. Um, but anyways, a small little caravan invading a country of hundreds of millions is not a significant threat to 
in terms of proportion. So by attacking the, the immigration policy in certain respects, you're detracting attention from other issues. So the fact that migration is a straw man argument or a straw man issue to what's really going on. So you're waving your hand in one direction to avoid talking about the real issue. Okay. So what's the real issue then? Well, there's lots of other real issues, but he's trying to generate anger against something else. Yeah, I mean, that's popular among his base. I mean, that's that's what that's what a, an effective politician, or a, I wouldn't even call him an effective politician, but that's what, you know, a good businessman or a good showman does. Like, they... They're, they're good at distracting the audience in one direction while they go and do something in the opposite direction. So, if you're the storyteller, you have a responsibility to tell the things properly. I think that's a good place to end it. I'm Whiskey. And I'm Rox. See you next week.